Well, good afternoon. I'm awful glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I wish I could have been here last night to hear how this all started and to make sure I wasn't saying the same thing again. But uh, as it is, I'm, I'm what you got to deal with. And so hopefully the things we talk about this afternoon are uh, things that will get you thinking because that's always a good thing to do. When people come to you and they tell you how things are in the world, it's good to be able to think for yourself and to be able to think about what they say and figure out what the truth of the matter really is. And uh, I appreciate what we're looking at this weekend, uh, the existence of God. And, and I love uh, the flyers that were printed out that just in big, bold letters say, I am. And perhaps no place in the Bible stands out to me as authoritative as when God tells Moses when they ask, who sent you? Say, I am sent you. And the God that we serve is, is in a lot of ways beyond our comprehension. And there's a lot of things about God that I just, I don't understand. Mike probably understands those things, but then I think there's probably several things that even Mike doesn't understand. And, you know, a lot of times we let that throw us, don't we? Because people are going to come to you, depending on if you are going to college or if you're in high school. I don't know most of you. So wherever you are in life, you're going to have people around you, either now or at some point, that are going to act like they know more about things than you do. Well, I know, I know about this God that you're talking about, and I'm going to tell you the truth of the matter. But we've got to be able to go back to our Bibles, and not only that, but to use logic to explain to them our belief in God. And I really think that that's what it comes down to when we look at the things that we've talked about this weekend or that have been talked about. Uh, cause and effect, that's, you know, any scientist would agree with you that that's one of the laws of physics, basically. And uh, that's something that just is a fact to so many people, yet let's ignore that when it comes to the existence of everything. I have a hard time with that. The design that is, in, that is uh, so seen and so evident in everything. It blows me away. If you've ever looked under a microscope at a cell, it is just incredible. And if you just think about the functions of our bodies, or even if you took one part of our body and, and just th thought about how our eye works, just one little part of our body that is built with such detail and design, and it's specifically designed for these purposes, and it, it does it beautifully in most cases. And as we go on, maybe it doesn't do it so beautifully anymore. But God designed that. And maybe it's because I've grown up studying the Bible and my parents taught me to believe in God and to believe in the inerrancy of His Word and the truthfulness of it. But to me, it's foolish to think anything else. I think of myself as I try to be intelligent in the way that I approach things and thoughtful about those things. And I can't think of a more rational solution to the questions here. Does God exist? Well, absolutely. Now, many times people are going to come to you. And when, when I was uh, in high school, the big thing to look out for was evolution. And everybody you see on a college campus is going to tell you about evolution and they'll, they'll make you try to believe that. And while that is a thing, and that's a very, uh, I believe that's a symptom of a bigger problem. And people aren't going to necessarily talk about that. Yes, you will hear that if you ever go to a science class anywhere. You'll hear traces of that. But I believe where we're going, and this is sort of where we're getting to the purpose of our, our study of this series, but specifically this topic, is because of this trend towards what is called postmodernism. Fancy word, we don't use it every day. Uh, 
look it up if you want to, but basically it's this trend that is leading us to believe that there is no such thing as objective truth. Nothing is true. You're reminded of what Pilate said when he was talking to Jesus in John 19, and he said, what is truth? Most people today, it seems like that's their favorite verse in the Bible, just those three words, and they want to apply that to everything. What is right? What is wrong? How can we even know that? Can we know that? We're in a society that asks questions, but they don't want answers. Because if we give an answer and say, this is the answer to that question, they'll say, well, then you're telling this person that they're wrong, and we can't say that. We can't tell people they're wrong if they're searching for the truth. There is an objective truth, but our society is more and more saying there is no truth. And along those lines, and dealing specifically with our subject this afternoon, people say there's no such thing as morality. There's no real morality. Morality changes and it grows as we grow as a human race. As we evolve culturally and we become more civilized, our civility changes and we become, we become more moral, more ethical. We become better people because that's just the way the world is going. But better and right and good, who can define that? Who can tell you what that is? It, we live in a world where evil is good and good is evil. It's, it's so backwards because there's no such thing to many people as real morality. You can't tell me what is moral. What's good to you might be bad to me. And I'm allowed to think that way. We can't let anybody tell us what the truth is. And so we see a culture that is dictating our morality, or better yet, taking the reins off of our, our morality and telling us that there's no such thing as morality at all. And so what we see is this pervasive, dangerous mode of thought. Pervasive meaning that it is everywhere. Ubiquitous is another good word that could do that. I know that word because in Lafayette, Georgia and all around, there were billboards that were white in black letters and all caps just said ubiquitous. Everywhere. First of all, I had to look up what the word meant. Guess what? It means everywhere, which I thought was really funny at that point. But it's a Coca-Cola ad. That's not important. But it is something that is uh, pervasive. It's everywhere. Our world is full of this mode of thought. It's dangerous. And it's people that say, I'm seeking the truth. I'm going to be more intelligent because I am on a search for what is good and what is right. But as Mark, uh, Mike talked about this morning, agnosticism is one of the things, and probably this is generous to call most people agnostic. I like that, uh, practicing atheism. Uh, agnosticism is a word that we don't use a lot either. But uh, if you were to Google search it really quick, Wikipedia when I was in high school was not a reliable source, but it's much more reliable, I've been told these days. If it's not, then this might be bogus, but I think this is right. It says, agnosticism is the view that the existence of God or the supernatural is unknown or unknowable. We don't know if there's a God. We can't know that there's a God. According to this philosopher, agnosticism is the view that human reason is incapable of providing sufficient rational grounds to justify either the belief that God exists or the belief that God does not exist. It's a doctrine or a set of tenets, not a religion. So you're not going to drive down the street and see the, the first agnostic church of Telhoma. But it's a system of, of beliefs. It what, it's what uh, dictates a mindset and the decisions that someone makes. But in the middle of this paragraph, you see that it is the view that we cannot provide enough reasoning. We can't rationally explain and justify that God exists. That's false. That's not true. 
Because we can absolutely, rationally and intelligently know that God exists and believe it. The Bible tells me that, but my brain tells me that too. My eyeballs tell me that. When I look out, my skin can feel uh, the, the things that God has created. I can taste what has been made. With my senses, I can know that there is a God. And on a clear night when you look in the sky, if that does not blow you away and impress you with the presence of our God, then I don't know what will. And I'm, I'm hard-pressed to understand how astronomers and people who look into the sky uh, and, and see the stars and study them, how they cannot believe that there is a God. But I digress a little bit. But you know what? We need to study this topic because this, uh, we, we have some questions, don't we? We have some questions to the one who says God does not exist. Well, if God does not exist, how can we answer these two questions? Why do morals exist? Why is there something in our brains that makes us think or feel that something is right or think or feel that something is wrong? Like Michael was saying, my dog doesn't do that. They don't, they don't think or feel. If my dog chases down a, a baby rabbit and kills it, my wife's the only, only one that's going to cry. My little dog's not going to cry. Don't feel bad about it. It's not in their programming. It's not in them. So also, why do we have rational thought? Why are we speaking the words? Why are we able to pose a question? Now, that, this is really where my mind starts to get blown. How can we even have the capability to ask a question if somebody hasn't put within us rational thought, the desire to seek truth? The desire to communicate and the ability to communicate. Do you see where I'm going with that? And I want to suggest that in this study, as we, as we jump right into supporting evidence uh, for our belief in God based on the presence of morality, that oftentimes we are on the defensive, right? People come to us, they say, oh, you, you're a member of the Church of Christ. Oh, you're a religious person. Oh, you believe in God or the Bible. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And we're always thinking, whoa, hang on. Uh, I, you know, I got to figure out a way to talk to all these people. First, I would suggest that the burden of proof is on them. Make them explain to you why they believe what they believe and see what sort of evidence they have to support it. Ours is overwhelmingly in our favor. But also, we can use this as a, an icebreaker or a good discussion as we go to talk to our friends or our coworkers or maybe our family members who don't believe in God or are practicing atheists or say, I don't really know or I don't think we can know. Let's ask them some of these questions and guide them to these conclusions that are Bible-based and make sense to us. So that's why we need to study this, this topic. It's because so many people just don't believe. That's to summarize the introduction. If you are just taking short notes, you can write that down. Let's look at some supporting reasons. Some logical things that tell us that God exists based on the fact that we have morals. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Hey, when you know it, then when we want to talk about who we are as individuals or as people, or we want to look to God and see where everything came from, Genesis chapter 1 holds the key to so many of these questions. But we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. Uh, he had created everything else, and on the sixth day, it says, in his own image, God made man, if you know the song, you're singing that in your head. In verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over basically everything. And in verse 27, so God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. When we see 
that man was created in God's image, we must understand that this is in opposition to everything else that was created. Nothing else was created in God's own image. This makes man special. This makes man different. And so what we have to do is look around and we ask ourselves, what is it that I have that my dog doesn't have? What is it that I have that that tree outside doesn't have? Or that that rock doesn't have? Or that the air I'm breathing doesn't have? What is it? Because something, God has given us something as people that he didn't give to anything else. I believe we're knocking at the door of that subject today. We're talking about morality. We're talking about thought. We're talking about uh, ethics and, and rationale and things like that. Notice with me in Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6. The psalm is, is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, I believe, in reference to Jesus. Uh, but we'll notice here in, chapter, or in, in Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3, what is said. And David writes, and he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. I want us to focus on a couple of phrases in these few verses. We look in verse 4. After we've looked at the sky and we've been impressed with creation, we say, what is man? Who am I? I'm so insignificant. I'm so small. Why do you care about me, God? But then he, he poses an answer here. He said, even though I'm so much lower and, and uh, more lowly than the beauty of the stars around me and in the heavens. He says in verse 5, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Do you realize that mankind is the crown jewel of God's creation? It's the crowning achievement of God's creation. We look at everything else and God demonstrates his sovereignty over that in such clarity. The sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. It does that every day. 24-hour revolution of the earth and we see the sunrise and the sunset. We make one revolution around the sun every 365 and a quarter days, which is why every fourth year we have an extra day out of somewhere. God has made that happen, and he demonstrates his power and his sovereignty by controlling that down to the minute. God's in control. But God made us a little differently. Which one of you felt like God made you get out of bed this morning? Or made you make any of the decisions that you made. Many people might say that God led them to make certain decisions. But God doesn't do that for us because he has created us in his own image. We're different. We're special. We've been crowned with glory and honor. We'll see later throughout the story of the Bible and in the New Testament that we have fallen short of that glory. The glory of God in which we're, we, we were created. But it's logical to conclude that we have something that other created things do not have. Morality. Ethics. Thought. But I want us to go to Romans chapter 2. There are many people who's, who would say, well, you know, morality is just this, uh, this, this set of tenets that religious people have been forced to believe over the years or that religious people force on other people. And so, you know, it's, it's probably from the, the reign of the Catholic Church and all of this corruption that they tell us what is right and wrong and they have taken away our ability to choose for ourselves what's right and wrong. 
That is not the case. Paul tells us back in Romans chapter 2, after he's loading up this, uh, this argument that the Jews have sinned and the Gentiles have sinned, in chapter 3, we have all sinned and we need to be justified and we'll be justified by Christ and reconciled when we get to chapter 5. In chapter 2, he tells us a little bit about uh, the, the state of morality among those who did not have the law of God. People who were not the Jews, who did not receive it from uh, the mountain with, when Moses came down. In Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, according to my gospel, when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice what he says there. People who are not exposed to religion, we might say. They might have been pagans. They might have been atheists of that day. People who were not exposed to God's specific law. And what does he say about them? They, by nature, do what the law requires. By nature, naturally, God has put within us what is right and what is wrong. The ability to feel what is right and what is wrong. That nature, that natural right and wrong sense has been changed over the years. Not the nature of it, but uh, culturally we have been told, no, 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 that's not wrong. That's not right. And so we've been trained other ways. And he says, by nature, they do what the law requires. And in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. God has put within the heart of man a desire to seek Him. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, it says that He has put eternity in our hearts. We are different. The very fact that we are different and that we have right and wrong inscribed on our hearts and in our minds where we feel what is right and wrong outside of the Word of God I'm talking about. The fact that we feel guilt or that people who don't have the law of God feel that, that shows us there is something larger at hand. And it's God. He's the reason for that. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, there is a command there that basically says, do not murder. And it says there, it says, because the man whom you've murdered was created in the image of God. And that is what God is appealing back to when he talks about morality. When we treat someone in a way that is wrong or immoral and affect someone else, we are, we are offending someone who was created in the image of God. In the image of God. And because this is the characteristic that is uh, being discussed here, we understand that murder, an immoral act, is one that arrogantly demonstrates a lack of respect for humanity. And that's what immorality comes down to. I believe, and I've believed this for a while, that if we wanted to boil down what all sin is rooted in, where it all comes from in our hearts, it comes down to being selfish, doesn't it? I, I can't think of a sin that doesn't originate with me being selfish, putting my desire over God's desire or my desire over someone else's desire. We have a tendency to be selfish. And when we do that, when we go against the laws of God, we are presuming to overstep boundaries that God has set in our hearts. And that's where we get immorality. 
And when we look around, though, we look through the Bible, we look at the world around us, we understand this, this factual piece of evidence here that when a culture departs from God's laws, immorality grows. We can't say that to the world around us, can we? Well, the reason you're so immoral, it's not usually a good leaving line. Uh, but even when we go talk to people in the world, they can't see this fact because they'll say, well, what, what is immoral? What's immoral to you isn't immoral to me. It's okay for me to do that because I think that it's okay. But when we understand that God has set up a law that is perfect, that is pure, that is right, that guides us into holiness, then we can understand when we leave God, immorality grows. And, you know, I meant to put in uh, transitions so that you'd be hanging on the edge of your seat wondering what the next thing was I was going to say, but they're all laid big before you on the screen, so I hope that's okay. We'll go back to the book of Judges. If you were to draw out, sketch out a visual representation of the book of Judges, wouldn't it be the cycle? The cycle of sin, where they're at peace, and they're good, and they're holy, and they worship God, but then they depart from Him for idolatry. They leave God, and then God sends someone to afflict them, and then they cry out for help, and God sends a deliverer, and then they let back to God. And it happens over and over. When do they experience the problems? It's when they immorality, when they go into idolatry, when they depart from God. It's factual. In English chapter 2, Amos is one of the books that we uh, turn to a lot. I'll give you a couple extra minutes to get there. Really, I'm giving myself a couple extra minutes to get there. In English chapter 2, we see a prophecy against Judah, but also against Israel here. And notice what's being said. Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Notice the condition of these people who have gone into idolatry, who have left the word of God. And describe me, tell me, is this a moral society? People who have rejected God, is this a moral society? Or would any society claim that these people were moral? In 2 verse 6, that says the Lord. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside from the way, the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girls, so that my holy name is profaned. And we see time and time again uh, these terrible, heinous, sinful acts that we can realize here that most people would not say that these are good things that they're doing. They're not helping those who are in need. They're profaning the word of God. They're sexual immorality. That's common in our society today, but it should not be a surprise that it is. Because we have abandoned moral principles that our Creator has not only instilled in us naturally, but also taught us in through His word. But we know that when we go back to the Word of God, when we study the Word of God, and this is what our aim is as Christians, as Christ's followers, people who love God and desire to follow His commandments and live pleasing to Him, when we go to His law, our morality is strengthened. We become more moral people, more ethical people. Psalm 119, verse 9, How can the young man keep his way pure? By guarding according to your Word. That's where the answer is. That's where true morality can be found. If you want to know what's right and what's wrong, don't ask your teacher, don't ask your principal, don't ask your friends, don't ask your boss, your co-workers, anybody else. Go to the Word of God, because He is the source of morality. I want us to notice, uh, back over in Romans chapter 1, 
what happens to people when they reject the God who has given them these morals? Romans chapter 1, we're familiar with verse 16 that talks about how the gospel is the power of God and salvation for all who believe. Then he goes on to talk at verse 18 beginning, and he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Futile here means useless. It's stinking thinking. It's, it's just useless, empty thinking here. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is a culture that has abandoned the God that they knew, that had been revealed to them, that showed himself so clearly through creation. They're without excuse here. This is not some, uh, some primitive tribe off in the Amazon that has never heard anything. But still, they have God revealed to them. But let's go on to see a, a fuller picture of what has happened to this culture and the moral depravity and corruption that happens when we depart and reject from the God who has created us in his own image. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That scares me, because I can't think of a a clearer picture of where we are today. People who know God, and that's the thing, most people that we're going to talk to, they know God. They've been taught about God to some degree. They've been taught what's right and what's wrong, but the small percentile that yells the loudest is influencing greatly those to, to turn away from this morality that God has put within us, even though they know what's right and wrong. I want us to notice that there are some reasonable conclusions, and we're going to go all the way back to the Declaration of Independence. Thankfully, there are many people in the world who are much smarter than me that have a much better way of saying things. I want to share with you some words from such a person. You may have heard of Doy Moyer. He said that the United States Declaration of Independence recognizes that humans are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Implicit in this statement is the recognition of the dignity of being human. Based upon the Creator's authority. We're not special because some mindless evolutionary process, but because our Creator has seen fit to make us special. Do you understand what he's saying there? Even the people that wrote up the Constitution, or the Declaration of Independence rather, they said, we have rights from our Creator that no one can take away. We are special among everything on the earth. 
We're not special because we evolved with a special gene. Or that we were fish who swang from trees. I didn't remember the exact process. Uh, but that we grew up to be special evolutionary. It doesn't make sense. But our Creator said that we were special. He made us special. He gave us morality. And so we have it. But then another question comes up. When we look at this, why do we have rights as people? Why do people have rights at all if they weren't given to us by someone who has the authority to give us rights? We've been endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. Things we can do because we're human. Who gave us the right to do that? Mike was saying that uh, it takes a, a larger force to make something happen than that event, like a fly landing on this book. But also, it takes someone with greater authority to me, than me to give me the right to do something that I didn't have the right to do. When you're growing up, who tells you what you can and you can't do? It's your mom and dad. Why do they have that authority? It's because they're bigger and meaner than you. And because they're your parents. Because they have authority over you, they can tell you what your rights are in your home. That seems like it should be an understandable thing there, but so many don't understand that concept. The world rejects that concept even today. But God has given us these rights because He is the only one who has authority to give us these rights. And another thing that Joy Moyer said, morality is part of the dignity of being human. You may have noticed that we only apply morals to people. When's the last time we talked about the morality of animals or the ethics of inanimate objects? We apply morality to humans because we know that there's something inherent in who we are that demands respectful behavior. We don't hold animals to the same moral standards that people are held to. Why is that? It's because we're different. Why is that? It's because God made us in His own image. So the very fact that we are moral points to someone who instilled that within us. Let's make some applications. Make some applications and we'll, we'll tie this all up. We understand that when there is a law, that someone, somebody had to give that law, right? We understand that when we see a speed limit sign out on the street, that somebody had to not only put that sign there, but somebody has to be behind that with authority to uphold that or to correct those who obey that. We, we know that. It makes sense. Because there is a moral law, even if people disagree on what that is, even if people at some, uh, some, in some places or at some times say, well, no, this is right, but that's wrong, and we disagree on the details of it, big picture, people have morality in them, and that tells us that it was given to us by someone with authority. That's God. God is the one who is that moral law giver, it points to God. But we see immorality in the world. And people say, well, if, if God is the one that made us moral, He sure did a terrible job at it because there's so much immorality in the world. I just don't see how we can trust the God who would allow things to get so bad. That's a lesson in and of itself. It shows the small-mindedness of man, I think. One of the things that impressed me with the book of Job as we talked about, God asked him questions because the answer was, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You just have such a small picture of what's really going on in the universe. God sees it all. 
And so when we say, well, there's immorality, so God must be to blame, that's a very small-minded and arrogant viewpoint. Psalm 18 and verse... Well, that's Proverbs. It's not going to help. Uh, Proverbs, or Psalms 18 and verse 30. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. The way of God is perfect. He is true. He is reliable. He is our protector. But when we look at the world around us, this is really where the rubber meets the road for Christians. Because we can argue with people till we're blue in the face. Well, yeah, I, you know, uh, there's morality issues in the world, but because there is morality, we need to believe in God. That's true. And I might also add in at this point that it should, it should hit us a little closer to home when we start applying this to our own lives, where we stand. But when we see the problems in the world, when we see immorality, and we know that immorality stems from those who have departed from God in whose image they were created, doesn't that reemphasize what you already know? Doesn't that reinforce that we need to be redeemed? In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, in a beautiful text that talks about the love of God and the grace of God that's extended toward all of those people who are sinners. Guess what? That's me and that's you. That's all of us. Beginning of verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us that in while we were still sinners, immoral, departed from God, rejecting Him. Those are all synonymous here. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God showed His love for us. That while we were the ones who had left His moral law, who were depraved because of our sins, we were living in that. God loved us so much that He gave His Son. His Son died for us. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Isn't that amazing? When you think about what that means for me and for you, when we all apply that personally to my life and and say, I have been a sinner. I have sinned against the holy God who has shown me what is right and wrong. I have rejected Him and rebelled against Him. But even while I was busy out sinning, God loved me enough to send His Son to die. When we see sin in the world, it should point us back to the cross. It should remind us of the need for redemption. But it also reminds us that not only do we need to be bought back, but we need peace to be made between us and God. And Christ's blood is what does that. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. That word reconciled means to bring two parties back together that were in opposition. 
They were fighting. They had problems. There was division there. Reconcile means that those divisions are gone. There's no more opposition. This text does not say that we decided that we were bad enough and that the world around us was bad enough. And we said, guys, we've got to get it together. We've got to go figure out what, what we can do for God so that we can be reconciled to him. It says God was reconciling the world to himself. He was doing all the work so that we could be reconciled. That's love. That's devotion from God. When we see immorality in the world, we need to be reminded. We need that reconciliation. But when it comes down to me personally and you personally, we can look at the world and say, oh boy, I'm so glad that, that Christ died for this world that's, that's full of sin and full of problems and immorality and they don't know God like they should and they re- reject against Him, rebel against Him. We can talk to people about all this stuff, but unless they see God's morality in our lives, it won't amount to anything. It will be useless. It will be hypocritical. It will be insulting to them and to God. If we say, no, you need to believe in God, you don't have to change anything. You can live just the same way I'm living. You can talk however you want to talk and do whatever you want to do and watch whatever you want to watch and and enjoy life up to the fullest. You just have to say that you believe in God. See, that doesn't mean anything. We need to exemplify the fact that we were made in the image of God. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And if God is love, then we need to understand being made in His image means that we have that capacity to love just the same way. We need to demonstrate love. Jesus tells us that the first and greatest command is this, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commands, sum it up in one word, it's love. To love God, put Him first. To love others, put them ahead of yourself. When we see how much God loves us and what that love means, doesn't it it impact the way that we show love to other people? Doesn't that impact the decisions that we make, the way that we view people around us? In Matthew chapter 9, the other great aspect that I'm thinking of, of, of God in whose image we're created, is the aspect and character of compassion. A God who, in the book of Exodus, says that I have heard the cries of my people and I'm going to deliver them. He saw what was going on. He felt compassion for them and He did something to deliver them. And we see the great promises that they went on to enjoy. And we see a picture of Jesus multiple times as it say that Jesus was compassionate. But look in Matthew chapter 9. Verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, pause, we think these crowds were like, were these really good people that say, Jesus, I know know I've messed up, help me, let me do something better, help me to be a better person. Do you think that all of them were like that? I bet some were, that they were seeking But I can guarantee you they were immoral. They had rejected God. They had rebelled against Him to some degree. They had sin in their life. Jesus saw them and it says He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. We ought to have compassion on those that we see. 
those in the world. We ought to love them the way that God loved them, to see that this is uh, that they have been lied to. It says here that Jesus said they were harassed and helpless. Do you know who was harassing them? It was Satan. That was the devil who had lied to them, who had promised them great things, only to be lying to them. He didn't deliver. He entrapped them. They were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. And he said, I'll be your shepherd. Then he says, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of harvests to send out laborers into the harvest. At the end of this weekend, we can pat ourselves on the back and say, boy, that was good. We had two and a half good lessons. And things were really great. We learned a lot. And I feel so much more built up personally because of what we studied. But if we walk out of here and we don't do anything about it, I hate to say it, but it's sort of been a waste of time. But when we look at the world and we have compassion on people who have been lied to about whether or not God exists, and we see that they are harassed by the, the people who would tell them that He doesn't when they feel that, that He does, and they should. We can present the truth to them, convince them that He exists, but not only that, that He loves them and that His Son died for them, and we can change their lives by the power of God. That's what it's got to be. That's the people we've got to be. We've got to live it ourselves, but we've got to teach it to others. We've got to be those laborers who are willing to go out into the fields and harvest So, you know, when we ask the question, why do morals exist? We're logically, I believe, led to God. It's an inescapable conclusion in my mind. This lawgiver who defines and dictates and determines what morality even is. So even though the definition of morality changes, God's definition does not change. God's holiness does not change. And since we understand and are considering that the only reason we can be good at all is through the, blood, through the blood of Christ. That should impact us. So I ask you this. This afternoon, I don't know how many of you here uh, have been baptized into Christ to have your sins washed away. I imagine many of you have. But I do understand that that shows me how much God loved me. And it shows me that if I'm willing to obey Him and believe in Him and repent of my sins, then I can have my sins washed away. I can be redeemed. I can be reconciled to God. That's what I want. That's what you should want. But if you are a Christian, you've got sin in your life. Maybe you believe that God exists and that He's the moral lawgiver, but you haven't been holding up to that. Do something about that today. Make it right. Come back to God and repent, and He'll accept you back. If we can help you, come right now while we stand and sing.